This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast network. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and today is a special Deep Dives episode because we are back with another NBA Deep Dives episode. So we are going to do our second edition of the Rookie Rank here on the Deep Dives podcast. And so I am here, of course, with the author of the most recent and the first, of course, Rookie Rank over at NoCeilingsNBA.com, my co-host for these Rookie Rank podcasts, Nathan Grubel. Nathan, how are you doing this fine Tuesday afternoon? I'm doing swell. I'm, I'm a little tired. It's, it's near the end of the quarter at the day job, closing out the year strong. But the good news is we get to talk about an incredibly fun topic tonight, which, by the way, it's a little variety for no ceilings this week, right? We're, we're releasing big boards, mock drafts. We have my NBA content. Steven just hosted Josh Lloyd from Locked On over on Home and Away. So our, our audience at least has a nice variety to enjoy as we head into the holiday season. Absolutely. It is an NBA heavy week over here at No Ceilings NBA. And so just a quick note on this for those of you who missed the first edition of this podcast. First of all, welcome. Glad to have you here. Second of all, the last time we went through the players in Nathan's rookie rank going from top to bottom with a special emphasis on the players at number one and number two on the rookie rank ladder. Today, we're going to do something slightly different. We're going to do them in reverse, so 10 to 1 on the order, but we are going to start off with the two highlighted players for this podcast, the two players we're doing deep dives on for this particular episode, and those players are number three and number four on Nathan's rookie rank. So if you haven't read the article yet, first of all, go ahead and do that. But second of all, if you hadn't, this might be surprising to you. If you have, however, read the article, then it should come as no surprise to you that the number three player on the rookie rank is the player that we're going to start off doing a deep dive on today. And that is Jaden Ivey of the Detroit Pistons. And Jaden Ivey, I had third on my board heading into this past draft season. So looks great for me that he's third on the ladder for a second consecutive ranking. Really happy about that. But he has been one of the more impressive rookies in this class. Obviously, that's why he's third on the rookie rank. But this in this month in particular is going to be a fascinating time to see where Jaden Ivey is at, basically, in terms of his play on the basketball court, in terms of who he's going to be as a rookie, and maybe even some signs of who he might be further down the road. So, Nathan, why don't you start off with your thoughts on Jaden Ivey here? So he didn't move from the previous edition. He's still at third overall here. What have you seen from Jaden Ivey so far this season that has you rank him as the third best rookie in this class, third best among the rookies who have played so far? It's really interesting, Nick. There could be a variety of opinions thrown out about Jaden Ivey as far as where he stands amongst his rookie peers. And if you look a little further down the rankings, I know we're going to talk about a number of different players tonight. But you could make different statistical arguments for other guys as to maybe they should be ranked ahead of Jay Nivey. Um, not only do I look at the stats, Nick, we, we all look at the stats here at No Ceilings, but we're also big on what are our eyes telling us? What are we really learning from the film? And when you flip on Jay Nivey's tape, I mean, I'm really looking for this rookie rank, and it's, it's fun we get to do this exercise once a month. I'm looking more of what he's done in December and watching back some of these games He's had opportunities not only because Caden Cunningham is out due to injury for the season now, he's taking over that lead guard spot or playing more so um, next to Killian Hayes. He's had real opportunities against good players, right? He had a matchup against the Grizzlies where he had to go up against John Moran, so that's a real interesting opportunity to see 
where he's at as a guard on both sides of the ball, but he's not afraid. And we kind of knew that coming in. That's a big reason why I had him very high on my big board. Nick, you referenced you had him number three overall on your NBA draft board last year. He still attacks as viciously as any other rookie in this class. And we kind of had a feeling the speed was going to translate at the very least in the open court, which yes, when he gets out in transition, he is still an absolute freak, right? But in the half court, I think he's starting to get better at decision-making out of the pick and roll, right? And that's something we, there's a few aspects to his game that I think we can break down as we're doing the deep dive on him. But one of the things that, a lot of evaluators were curious about was what was what was he going to look like in the pick and roll? He's not an advanced passer. He's not reading multiple levels of the defense. What's that going to mean when defenses learn how to play on him in those screen actions once he gets that initial step, right? The answer is he's still winning the foot race 95% of the time, right? That we, we kind of figured that was going to happen. But the interesting wrinkle to his game, Nick, that I noted in my piece specifically was when he does get a little too deep into the defense and he doesn't have that same angle to be able to score, he's finding passing opportunities to get himself out of trouble. And that's something where maybe he's not recognizing when to pass as early as he should, but at least he's using his strengths, he's using his hang time, his ability to change different angles with his body to find those passing lanes to get the ball to where it needs to go for the role man, right? Him and Jalen Duran have been a fascinating pick and roll combo already this year. I would expect that to continue, but him being able to find the bailout guys to either extend the play, keep it alive, or ultimately lead to an assist, a made jump shot or a made dunk. That's something that stood out to me as far as his pick and roll game. Now there's still questions abound, right? When, when he comes off that screen and he looks to take those one, two dribbles, get in the paint, he can't get all the way to the rim. So he's pulling up for a jump shot or he's pulling up for a floater. There's times you look at the film that he's airballing some of those shots, right? That's just still not in his wheelhouse. He's not comfortable taking advantage of those looks. That was a question that I had. Did he need the mid-range pull-up shot? Was it going to hinder his offensive attack? I would say yes, but not as dramatically as I thought it would. So that's still something he needs to work on. And then the three point shot, I'm sure you're going to reference that. We can talk about that a little bit as well, but overall, I think the highest of highs on tape is really what I'm looking for from a rookie in particular on offense. It's an offensive driven award slash ballot for the all rookie system. I still like what I'm seeing from Jay Nivey. However, I think he's leaving the door open a little bit for other players to possibly pass him on the next rank if he doesn't clean up some of the issues and get a little bit more efficient away from the basket. So you mentioned this, but I think it's worth heading back to just quickly. The fact that Cade Cunningham is out for the rest of the season is going to mean a lot for Jaden Ivey. And I think I'm not entirely sure yet how much of that is positive and how much of that is negative in the sense of we're really going to be able to see what Jaden Ivey can do out there. And we're also unfortunately going to, see a decent chunk of what he can't do because he's going to get a lot more defensive attention as the year goes on with Cade Cunningham out. But, you know, circling back to something that you mentioned, it's fascinating because when you look at some of these really, really athletic players and, you know, they go up a level, you think, okay, well, he was able to do X against high school competition, but, you know, college game is bigger, more athletic, and, you know, he's not just going to be able to dominate purely on his athleticism. And then we see Jaden Ivey at Purdue, and it's like, well, actually, he can kind of dominate just purely on his athleticism. But, you know, when he gets up to the next level, when he gets up to the NBA level, there's going to be athletes that he, he can't deal with. And then we see Jaden Ivey at the NBA level, and actually, it turns out he's still faster than pretty much everybody. So, you know, sometimes <laughs> those athletic advantages are big enough that even when you make that jump in level of competition, you're still an elite athlete against even the NBA level of competition. And that's where I stand with Jaden Ivey. But I do want to go back to the passing because that I think is the most important discussion point that we have here with Jaden Ivey. Now, part of the reason why I had Jaden Ivey third overall on my board is because I think I believed in his eventual passing ability a lot more than many people. I thought that he's not a primary point guard yet, but I think I had a lot more faith that he would be able to get there in the longer term than some people. And, you know, when we were doing our draft night stream for the 2022 draft, I think we had a pretty clear consensus among the no ceilings people that 
Detroit was just about the best possible place where Jaden Ivey could have ended up because, you know, the fact that he wasn't quite a primary point guard level of passer yet wasn't a big deal because they had Cade Cunningham, who's an exceptional passer and someone who, you know, at 6'6", can guard up in lineups, right? So, you know, having someone like Jaden Ivey as a potential point guard, defender, shooting guard on offense seemed to work fantastically alongside Cade Cunningham. But now with Cade Cunningham out for the season, you know, even with Killian Hayes having a bit of a revival season, which certainly I would not have expected coming into the year, but even with that revival season from Killian Hayes, Jaden Ivey is going to have a lot more of the playmaking responsibilities on his shoulders than he did at the start of the season. And then you know, we would have anticipated with him alongside Cade Cunningham. And, you know, obviously you can't predict, you know, season-ending injuries, but it will be fascinating to see what Jaden Ivey does with these passing opportunities because he's going to get a lot more chances with the ball in his hands and not just as a downhill driver, but as someone who's going to be expected to create for others as well. And I think the one thing that has helped Jaden Ivey, and it's something we didn't really see with him at Purdue, right? We didn't see him have floor spacers to the level that some of the shooters are on Detroit, right? Like some of his best lineup combinations, you mentioned Killian Hayes. It's It's been a little bit of a hit or miss partner for him, but Killian is someone who can take some of that passing pressure off of him. But when Ivy does have the ball in his hands and he needs to kick it out, lineup combinations with guys like Sadiq Bey, with obviously Boyan Bogdanovich. Um, when, when Isaiah Stewart, somebody like that, is able to space the floor from the big man spot, those sorts of lineup combinations are still a net positive in terms of points per 100 possessions, not necessarily a negative. So having the ability to maybe trust the guys around you a little bit more, first of all, to actually have the space, right, because of the threat that they are to shoot, but to also be able to trust those guys to kick the ball out, not feel like every time I drive to the basket, I have to do this myself. This has to result in me getting two points or else the possession is going to be um, completely null and void. That's something I don't think is talked about enough either. It's not just the spacing and being able to take the space. It's about having the confidence and the trust in your teammates to make the right play if the rest of that play is walled off from you. And I think that's something that Jay Nivey has in certain lineup combinations with this Detroit Pistons team. And in a way, it's really interesting to try and evaluate some of those lineups, which is something I want to do over the next month, Nick, as we come into Rookie Rank Volume 3, because... While Killian Hayes isn't your quote-unquote perfect backcourt mate for him probably either, it's not like Cade Cunningham has lit the NBA world on fire from a catch-and-shoot perspective, right? That's one weakness to sure. his game that we noted in his rookie year, and I think we still saw some of those struggles coming into his sophomore year. So even though Cade Cunningham is out and he's not able to split the on-ball differences with Jay and Ivey, it's not like he was this – perfect catch and shoot guy for Jay Nivey to take advantage of some of those passing opportunities either. So I think the lineup combinations around Ivy more so than more of what we can learn from Ivy's passing just in a pure vacuum, I think is something that I definitely want to monitor and something we all should monitor. So let's talk about the shooting quickly, because especially in the last month, especially especially from three-point range, it has not been pretty for Jaden Ivey. And part of the reason why I was as high on him as I was is because I thought his sub-30% three-point shooting from his freshman year at Purdue was not a true indicator of who he was as a shooter. I thought, you know, this was a guy who was a 40%-ish three-point shooter in high school. He's going to correct above you know, that sub 30% mark that he put up as a freshman. Sure enough, as a sophomore, he shot 40% from three-point range for most of the season before a uh, before a super cold February dropped him below 40%. But, you know, he was above 40% for most of the season last year, and he's sub 30% again, which is, you know, not great for my whole, no, trust me, he really can shoot. No, I promise he really, really can shoot idea. And, you know, his true shooting percentage in October, 55%, November, 51%, December so far, 48%, which is not great. And, you know, you mentioned his lack of a uh, mid-range game, and that, I think, is almost more of the problem than the three-point shooting. You know, again, maybe I'm just being optimistic in thinking that... I think by the end of the season, that three-point percentage is going to correct to above 30%. You know, maybe mid-30s is a bit too helpful. Maybe it's going to be more like low-30s. But, you know, really what you mentioned with teams just 
being able to force him into terrible situations whenever he's either not at the rim or, you know, with space behind the three-point line. That, I think, is really going to be an issue for him in terms of filling out the rest of his offensive game. But I'm curious for your thoughts on his shot, because I know that I was more of an optimist on that than most people. And certainly, you know, the past month or so, it looks like the pessimistic take might have been the more reasonable one. Well, you have to keep in mind the context as well over the last month, right? So now we, we talked about from a passing perspective, some of his offensive responsibilities are beginning to shift. That's sort of taking place with his shot making as well, right? So on unguarded catch and shoot shots for the season, he still rates out in the 51st percentile for synergy, which that's a good rating, certainly a good rating for a rookie. When we take a look at more of his pull-up shooting, his guarded spot-up attempts, when you look at um, high pick and roll, where he where he rates out at as far as a score in those situations, which a lot of that's going to come from the defense pulling underneath the screen and giving him that space to shoot. Those types of pull-up shots, he's not knocking those down at a high volume, right? He wasn't always knocking them down in college at Purdue either. Certainly some of his best highlight clips have him making some of those pull-up threes, but I would have never called that a strength for him in college either, right? So now you look at the split in the shot diet, he's not getting those shots where he has a little bit of time to set himself up, get his mechanics right, knock it down. He has to pull up with much less time. He has to pull up with the defender's hand in his face. And those shots just aren't comfortable for him right now, whether it's from mid-range or it's from three-point range. So I'm with you. I still buy the jump shot long-term, but I think – it's it's unfair to expect great results from a player who was, first of all, he's just trying to figure out the NBA game as a whole. Then he's trying to figure it out from one role. Now he's in more of a different role, right? Because they're placing more expectations alongside between him and Killian Hayes. He's getting more of those split reps on the ball. He's, he's having to adjust to so many different roles within the context of the NBA game, which is completely new to him. So I think just from that perspective alone, we should temper expectations for a number of pieces to his game, certainly on the offensive end. But I, I don't know how much you want to touch on the defense or not. I don't know if I have much of anything to say positive about the defense, but it's still just preaching patience with these rookies as a whole. What I have to say about the defense is let's talk about Jaden Ivey's two-point shooting really quickly. So. <laughs> He's shooting 47% from two-point range, which I think is actually a really strong positive indicator for him, especially given that he's, you know, not a mid-range jump shooter at all. The fact that he's able to, you know, get to the rim as effectively as he has and still be, you know, pretty close to 50% from two-point range is really impressive for a guard, you know. And granted, that percentage might be lowered if he was taking a bunch more mid-range shots and not exactly knocking them down. But, you know, the... 41, 29, 72 splits on the surface don't look that great. But when you dig a little bit deeper, especially into the two-point numbers, I mean, he's relatively efficient at converting once he gets to the rim. The question is just, you know, when he's forced off the three-point line and he's struggling with his shot a bit, can he get to the rim enough and get those efficient baskets near the rim often enough? And so far, it seems like he has, at least in my opinion. And the question is just, you know, how he can expand the rest of his game beyond that. Correct, because defenses are going to adjust to him being able to get to the basket one way or the other, right? So eventually it's going to come to the point where, similar to John Morant, he's going to get a lot more of those looks for for a floater or a runner in the lane. Is he going to be able to knock those shots down with regularity? So far, the answer to that question is no. He's in the 17th percentile on runners. So that that really has to come up and, and be a strength for him to reach more of his potential, I think. And more so than just like the mid-range pull-up from the elbows, right, Nick? I think that when he gets two feet in the paint, if he can get that floater game going to me, that's enough of the quote-unquote mid-range arsenal for him to have, more so than that elbow pull-up jumper, because he can get into the paint almost whenever he wants. The question is, will he always be able to get to the basket, right? Get within three feet or less of the basket, defenses are going to figure out how to wall him off just like they have walled off other quick guards in the past. What's he going to be able to do once he gets around just around that free throw line and in when he gets two feet in the paint? Yeah. He just needs to be able to do something when he's stuck in that like 10 to no man's land range. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When he's stuck in that like 10, 20 foot range. And I don't know. I think that, you know, having a 
solid pull-up jumper is going to be more helpful for him in the long term just because that's something he can extend out beyond the arc in theory. But in the short term, I totally agree with you that he needs to have at least something and having an effective, I don't think he even needs to be, you know, spectacular at it, but even just, you know, having an average floater when he gets into that in-between range, you know, will give him a lot more opportunities just because that's something that defenses have to pay attention to as opposed to, okay, you know, he's inside the three-point line, therefore he's just going to be trying to drive to the rim. And as long as we wall him off at about 15 feet, we know he's not going to be able to do anything useful with it. Yeah, and, and it a lot of it also comes back to, and this is something you can certainly say about him on the defensive end, but offense as well. It just, there are just certain points of the game where you're looking at him and the, the game's moving a little too fast for him, which is fine. That happens to every single rookie, but it's something where as he continues to get more possessions under his belt, as he gets more familiar with his teammates to the speed of the NBA game, I would imagine some of these issues that we're talking about for him, maybe there aren't permanent fixes to them as we get later on in the season, maybe they're more quote unquote band-aid fixes is uptick a little bit, but a lot of rookies do eventually have strong March and April runs in them. Right. And that's, that's a byproduct of a, a variety of different factors when it comes to the NBA game, right? Like teams are gearing up for the playoffs. They're resting the better players more often, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think there's also merit to rookies just being more acclimated and more adjusted to the speed of the game. And when things do start to slow down for him, I think we're going to see a number of positive indicators jump right back up for him at both ends of the floor. Well, someone who definitely has adjusted a bit to the speed of the game since we last did these rookie rankings, you had a player at number four this time around who was number six in the previous edition, and we had a debate about why he was as high as number six. That seemed <laughs> quite generous at the time, and now I look foolish for having said that was quite generous at the time because Jabari Smith Jr. has been pretty good since the last rookie rank, you know, especially in the last couple of weeks. His three-point shooting, which has been disastrous basically since Summer League, is finally turned a corner, and we're seeing the elite three-point shooting Jabari Smith Jr. that the evaluators expected heading into the draft and you know the defensive acumen with him has always been the main selling point and you know he's continued to figure things out a little bit more on the defensive end but i mean really the biggest difference between the last edition and this edition for jabari smith jr is just the shot started going down and you know everything looks a whole lot different with jabari smith jr once that three-point shot starts going in isn't it amazing how the NBA comes back to being a make or miss league as often as it does, right? Like a player looks so much better when they're making shots. And I wrote this specifically in, in my column, Nick, it's a gripe that I think too many people took to heart with Jane Hardy last year in the draft too, right? Like when, when Jane Hardy wasn't making shots in the G league, all of a sudden, well, his numbers are down. So we're going to try to look at why his numbers are down, but while we're focusing on one negative, we're going to see all these other negatives kind of, prop themselves up and now we're going to have this horrid outlook on him as a prospect instead of just focusing in on well maybe there's one negative to his game but if that wasn't a negative if that was a positive would we care as much about a lot of these other negatives and the same thing happens with Jabari Smith and that even even during some periods at Auburn last year when he wasn't shooting quote-unquote the best from certain spots on the floor you take a look at some of those negatives and now you're seeing some of these other parts of his game pop up to maybe you didn't notice them as much before he he can't really finish with his left he's not a good threat off the dribble to begin with uh, his two-point percentage is low and you take a look at these negatives and you bring them out of this context of well how many of these things is he going to be asked to do at the NBA level at least right off the bat right is he going to have to be a self-creator is he going to have to finish all of these different shots around the basket or is he going to be primarily a jump shooter a three and D option, a much more complimentary style player for the Houston Rockets. And if he's making these shots, his case all of a sudden looks a lot better, doesn't it? And that's exactly what's happened with the Houston Rockets. Now I will say since I started watching more of the tape for Jabari in preparation to write and then do this podcast with you, Nick, I think his last three games, he's been one of 15 for three point range. I, I get it. I'm just a jinx in, in general in life. And it, it, it happens, but before that three-game stretch, you mentioned it. He was a 40% three-point shooter again, which he was a 40% three-point shooter in college. That was a big selling point to his game. 
And it certainly helped space the floor and make life a lot easier for his fellow Houston Rockets players as well, right? It opens up better driving angles for uh, driving angles, excuse me, for Kevin Porter Jr. and for Jalen Green. It gives the space for Alper and Shengun to be able to do what he loves to do in the post. Which, oh by the way, Jabari Smith's also a big beneficiary from those kickouts out of the post, right? So him being able to make shots, him bringing attention out and away from the middle of the floor. We're seeing what it can do for the Houston Rockets, who, oh, by the way, it's really funny when you look on draft Twitter, you see some of the Rockets fans saying, maybe we're winning too many games. Maybe we shouldn't be piling up all these wins and trying to go after Victor Wembanyama. Uh, well, first of all, I never thought the Rockets were going to be the worst team in the NBA. Funny enough, I actually thought that was going to be the Charlotte Hornets, who, by the way, they are they are awful. I'm. They are a tire fire. Not to make you're, this a you're really, pot, you're really but... going to do this the day after they beat the Kings. Is that <laughs> really how we're going to do this? Is that really what what's happening here? I see. Yeah. I see. I see how it is. I mean, all jokes aside, you you. I'm sure you watched that game. Did you have any other opinion about the Charlotte Hornets after watching that game? Um, the they were good in the fourth quarter. I'll say that. <laughs> I, I think I think the Kings are allowed to have an off night given how good they've been. But all, all in all, Houston has not been one of the absolute worst teams we've ever seen play in the NBA. They've certainly had moments where they've been able to put some things together. And when they have done so, it's been because of Jabari Smith making shots on offense, which it's funny we talk about that angle. We don't necessarily talk about his defense either, which, oh, by the way, has been rock solid all year long. Now there are certain points on film that we could pick out and talk about, right? He's, he's not going to be this awesome defender against like a Giannis Antetokounmpo or somebody who's going to absolutely bully his way over and through them. But he's shown examples that he can defend in, in multiple different situations that he can be a pick and roll defender. He can be an isolation defender. He can get back in transition. He can close out and contest shots. These are things that, we knew that's the six foot 10 Jabari Smith was capable of. And it's, it's just amazing how those things are accentuated and they're much more positive when he's knocking down the shots. So full disclosure, I had Jabari Smith jr. Fourth on my board last year, which means that I despise him and his entire family, of course. <laughs> but No, I mean, the reason that I had him fourth on my board was entirely because of some of the offensive issues that you've mentioned. And, you know, before he started hitting down, knocking down three-point shots with more regularity, some of those offensive issues really, you know, stood out to me in a troubling manner, you know, especially his lack of efficiency around the basket, his lack of a handle, you know, that would give him more of an offensive ceiling rather than just basically being a spot-up guy. And, you know, that was why I had him down at number four. The defense, on the other hand, was the main reason that I regretted having him at number four. You know, the main reason why I felt like maybe this guy should be higher. This guy really should be higher because, I mean, you know, with his lateral mobility at his size, he has the potential to be, I mean, one of the best defensive big men in the NBA. You know, I don't think he's going to win a defensive player of the year, but I would be surprised if he doesn't make at least one all-defensive team before his time is up. I mean, just given his ability to cover the floor as a switch guy, his ability to, you know, be someone who the Rockets can rely on on the perimeter in stretches in addition to being someone who, you know, in theory, further down the line can be a bit more of a presence in the post if they need him to be defensively. But, you know, even if he doesn't bulk up, I'm not even sure that would help him that much because really the greatest strength of his is his switchability as a big man defender. And I mean, this is the kind of thing where pretty much all rookies are terrible defensively. So even being like not too bad defensively is a pretty strong point in favor of a rookie. When you're talking about someone like Jabari Smith, who I think has been a genuine plus on the defensive end, you know, not like all world elite defender quite yet. You know, there's still some lapses in there and he's still, again, could, you know, probably serve to put on a few more pounds, but He's yeah, but the thing is, he's really only looked bad against the best players that he can face on an NBA floor, right? If he's going against you know starter caliber, I'm talking about like the third through fifth guys in the rotation, or he's going up against other bench talents, he's looked like the Houston Rockets' best defender. Which again, we're talking about an NBA rookie. We're not talking about a five-year vet. So like that's 
yeah, I know, not really the high, the highest bar in the world, but I, I, I'm just saying we're talking about a guy in his first year who's again still trying to adjust to the NBA level. That's a really high compliment to give any rookie. Saying they're not bad on defense, it'd be I'd be hard pressed to find somebody talking about ten to fifteen rookies in this class who we're saying are legitimately good at defense. I know for one. Our, our good our good friend Tyler Metcalf probably wouldn't be saying those things with how harsh of a critic he is uh, with, with young guys on the defensive end. But th- there's a lot of positives to say about Jabari Smith there. And I guess the last point, Nick, th- that I wrote in my column is it's really important for rookies to have at least one thing they can hang their hat on, right? To keep getting those minutes to develop the other parts of their game. Maybe if the shots aren't falling, that's a deterrent. But the fact that he is playing the defense that he is, that gives him a reason to stay on the floor, to keep getting those shot attempts, to get himself into a rhythm, get the makes going. And then when you get the makes going, you find one role for him. Then he can start to experiment with other parts of his game, which actually he has. If, if you look at the film and you watch some of his drives to the basket, Nick, he's actually putting some of those together. I know it's like it's crazy to say, considering he showed almost none of it, apparently at Auburn, according to, to other harsher NBA evaluators. But it's amazing what happens when good things go right for him. And then he's given more of the freedom to explore and, and try other things out when he has more of the confidence in his game. That's really fascinating because, you know, something that I talk about on this particular podcast all the time is young players finding different avenues to work their ways into rotations. And usually when I bring that up, that's along the lines of, you know, okay, you have to be decent enough at a couple of things, right? So that you can fit into, you know, a lineup construction that needs you to be a secondary playmaker, but also a floor spacer, but, you know, also a wing defender. But, you know, that is a really fascinating point that you bring up that ultimately, if you don't have at least one thing that is high quality enough that, you know, a coach is kind of forced to put you into the rotation for that. You know, even if you're okay at seven other things, if you're not good enough to get that chance in the first place, you know, you're not going to get to show that you can do those seven other things. Exactly. And I, I to, well, to your point, I do think when you start looking at multiple high level skills, we're not just talking about rookies when you bring that up. That's more like three, four, five year guys in the NBA who they have a shorter leash. They're not, they're not the shiny new toy coming out of the box. They have much more to prove. If you're a rookie, if you are that shiny new toy, what can you do to prove to me that you can get those minutes on the floor to show me that maybe there is more to you? Maybe you can earn that starter spot in a rotation. Maybe you can keep that starter spot in a rotation. The expectations are a little bit different for a rookie player compared to a more established NBA veteran. But nevertheless, yeah, you don't have that one thing, at least that one thing that you can really hang your hat on. It's going to be tough for you to crack an NBA rotation given how talented the league is nowadays, given how deep the league is nowadays. These bad teams that we think are really that bad, they can win a game on any given night. They can beat a really good team on any given night. And I'm not sure we would always say that with some of the lottery teams in the past, right? I can think of the, the tank tanktastic 76ers that went, you know, they all, that only won like nine, 10 games. You know, we're not saying those things about that team, but we're looking at a team like the Orlando magic and go, who can go up to Boston and win that game on the road. in one of the toughest environments that we have in the NBA, the bars higher, therefore, even for rookies to, a certain extent, the bar needs to be higher. And thankfully, Jabari Smith is finally starting to, to clear more of that bar as we get deeper into the year. So let's now move on to the remainder of the top 10. And if we're talking about players who earn their way into the rotation and hang their hat on one specific skill, I think that is a perfect way to transition into talking about Dyson Daniels of the New Orleans Pelicans, who has been impressive this year in ways that, you know, maybe would have been more on the optimistic side of his projections heading into the season. But the main thing for him, you know, heading into the draft was pretty much everybody expected him to be a really good defender sooner rather than later. And sure enough, that's been his main path to rotation minutes for the Pelicans. It has been, right? So a a few injuries in the backcourt have allowed him some opportunities to get the minutes that he's getting. For New Orleans, I think should this have been a, a healthier team from start to finish, he might not have the same opportunity at this point in the season. But now that he's gotten the Nick, he's really grabbed the reins of not just being one of the team's best backcourt defenders, but also being 
get this, a reliable shot maker, right? He's been a 41% three-point shooter this year. He's hitting at a 50% mark from the field overall, which that's important because he's showing some of the pull-up shots along the baseline. He's showing some of those shots, you know, uh, around the elbow, around the elbows, around the free throw line extended. These are some of the shots we quest. We First of all, obviously we question whether he can make the three-pointer, but we also question if he wasn't getting all the way to the basket, if he wasn't just getting easy transition opportunities to score, what else was he going to be doing in the offensive department? And now that he's showing more of his shot-making ability, now that he's that threat to score, Nick, I've heard you say it a ton. I've heard other guys say it at no ceilings a ton. If you aren't a threat to score, how are you going to be as big of a threat to pass the basketball? And now that we're seeing much more balance in one area, we're seeing the passing come alive as well. He just had a game the other night where he had nine, nine assists, right, and, and limited turnovers. That's the type of player that Dyson Daniels can be. He can be a low mistake, high assist, and then when you're throwing in the types of shots he's able to hit, the rebounding on both sides of the ball and the defense, it's that well-rounded player, which is why I think a lot of us ultimately jumped him up on our big boards last year. I have to admit that I would not have expected this player to make the rookie ranking list as early as they have because I was expecting Shaden Sharp to be much more of a long-term project. And instead, he has had some of the best moments of any rookie in his class playing for the Portland Trailblazers. And I think we talked about this on the last edition of the rookie rank too, but his defense in particular has been a whole lot more promising than I expected it to be a whole lot sooner than I was expecting him to show promise on that end of the floor. He's been much more positive than negative as an on-ball defender. He's going to continue to fill out. He's going to continue to get stronger. His awareness, his ability to recognize certain actions away from the ball, all of those things are going to improve. But just as an on-ball guy, Nick, he's been tough. He's been competitive. That six-foot-six size, that length that he has really does help him do a little bit more of that as a rookie. He comes in at number nine on the rank. He, He definitely fell some spots from the last one, but that's to be expected. He's certainly one of the younger players coming in, but everyone also goes through shooting slumps and he's going through a little bit of a shooting slump right now. The difference being it seems to have affected him in a different way to where we're not seeing the minutes jump up at all, right? Some of that scoring impact or lack thereof, it's keeping his minutes about where they were in the last time we did these rankings. And he, it seems like he's also taking less shot attempts too. He's not as confident in his shot. He's still trying to find himself offensively as he will look to come out of a little bit of a slump. We'll see where he ends up on the next rookie rank. But again, comes back to make or miss. It's not just the make or miss though. It's also what seems to be his confidence level in his shot has come down. If that comes back up, he can absolutely go right back up in the rookie rank because of what you mentioned, the fact that he's been better on defense than we probably expected. Up next at number eight, the first player we're going to talk about today who was not taken in the top 10 of the last draft, although if I'm remembering correctly, many people at No Ceilings, both of us included, had him in their top 10. A.J. Griffin, now of the Atlanta Hawks, and he's had a couple of game winners, which obviously have been exciting in terms of, you know, making the rounds in terms of social media highlights. But in terms of what he's actually done on the court, he's done basically what everybody would have predicted, which is, you know, maybe there are some concerns outside of this, but the shooting and floor spacing has been what we would have hoped for. And his health has been there, which, you know, especially given how the last few years for AJ Griffin has looked really, that's the biggest thing for him is just staying healthy. But, you know, beyond that, he's also knocking down a ton of shots from beyond the arc and the Hawks you know, really need that kind of three point spacing out of him. Before college, he was billed as a scorer and a shooter during college billed as a scorer and a shooter. And now in the NBA, he's also been a really fantastic scorer and shooter. It comes back to the natural touch that he has. He had arguably some of the best touch in the class last year. I don't think the shot variety, the types of shots he could hit or his ability to hit them in general, I don't think any of those things were ever in question. It was more so about the health, about the durability. Where was his athleticism at? Could he regain more of what we saw from him in high school to add to that potential star ceiling that everybody thought that he had before the year to rank him as arguably a top five prospect in last year's draft class? The good news is, we are seeing more of that comes back, come back. He looks like he's in better shape. He looks like he's moving better on the floor. And it's helped him not just offensively, Nick, in making some of those shots. It's helped him take different driving angles to the basket. It's helped 
And therefore, when he's taking those angles, he's getting better passing angles. He's moving the ball effectively as more of a connector type player. And he's also, I think he's been a better defender than a lot of people would have probably thought he'd be at this point of the season. I mean, his defense, we, we talked about it a ton in our no ceilings chats last year, Nick. He was bad on defense mm-hmm. at, at Duke. And that has not been the case in the NBA jumping up for the Atlanta Hawks. His his movement, like I said, has been better. But also what really helps him is he does have that big frame. He has that strength. He It, it helps him at least compete with guys one-on-one. And he just seems like one of these rookies who – He's getting better by the game. Maybe he's not always knocking down every single one of his shots game by game, but he's looking more comfortable. And the fact that he even earned that spot to be able to start and fill in for some guys who were injured like DeAndre Hunter with the Atlanta Hawks, that should speak volumes for somebody who wasn't in the top 10 of the NBA draft, despite what the talent might have led you or I or certainly Corey and Albert, other guys over at the draft act to rank them as high as they did. Speaking of which, somebody else who certainly earned their way into an NBA rotation faster than many were expecting. I did my mea culpa on Andrew Nemhard in the previous rookie rank, and it seems like I'm due for another one because he ends up at number seven, the first and only player in the rookie rank and honorable mentions who was not taken in the first round. And yet Andrew Nemhard has already started a decent number of games for an Indiana Pacers team that is far better than I think really anybody expected heading into the season. He's been astonishing. And, you know, granted, I'm saying that as someone who wasn't as high on him last season heading into the draft, I've admitted I was wrong on that already twice, and I'm sure I will many more times before the end of his career. But he has just been rock solid and you know that i guess wasn't that hard to predict but him being rock solid as like a point guard who's earned starting minutes as opposed to like a third string point guard is really astounding that he's done that already in his young career and again certainly much more than i expected from him and i'm more than willing to admit for the second of you know what'll probably end up being seven thousand times that i was wrong about andrew nemard I mean, if you're able to play 30-plus minutes a night for a team that's racking up wins in either conference, I would certainly have you on the short list of players who I'm going to rank on our rookie ballot, which has been the case for Andrew Nemhard. And it's it's not hard to come into the spotlight a little bit if you have a near 30-point triple-double against the defending champions, right? That was certainly Andrew Nemhard's coming-out moment. But really what he's done since then, he's been – Nothing short of spectacular. I mentioned the amount of minutes he's playing. I mentioned how he's scoring the ball, how he's been uh, one of the better pick-and-roll guards on that Indiana Pacers team. He's been an effective scorer, 49% from the field in the month of December, 37% from three, 78% from the line, which equates out to a 58.5 true shooting percentage. As a rookie guard, I've been really impressed by the offense, but also, Nick, by the defense. And shout-out to one of my mentors in the basketball space. I made sure to link his interview um, with Alex Golden over at the Setting the Pace pod. Coach David Thorpe has certainly praised Andrew Nemhard not just before the draft when he said that Andrew should have probably been looked at as a first-round pick, but certainly now he thinks he has star upside because of the defense that he's showing. And while I'm not going to go to potential star just yet, I do think a lot of what he's shown, he's been able to do it because he's been that good of a defender, Nick because he's been one of those physical guards in the backcourt who can guard on the ball. He's recognizing where to rotate, how to play certain passing lanes off the ball. And that defensive equity that he's built for a coach in Rick Carlisle who wants his guys to be tough and to play defense, that's really helped him earn the spot on the floor that he has. And now he's getting to show a lot of the offense along with the defense. He's been one of the better two-way guys in this class so far. So from my personal admission of fault, we go to your personal attack, which is after having him ranked fourth on the first edition of the rookie rank, Keegan Murray proceeded to play better basketball than he had for the first month in the season and, of course, was rewarded for his (laughs) being dropped two spots in the rookie rank. So, Nathan, what do you have to say to the city of Sacramento about this horrendous crime that you've committed upon the rookie rank here? First of all, Keegan Murray is not a bad basketball player. Keegan's a good basketball player. I personally think he's capable of more, which is something that I highlighted in in my piece. I think he's capable of more playmaking opportunities. I certainly think he's capable of being a better defender 
than he's been so far in the NBA. But if we just want to look at the positives and we only want to focus on the positives, you're right. He didn't necessarily do anything from an offensive standpoint other than the cold stretch that he had for probably a little bit during the first rookie rank and then a little bit through till November. He had a little bit of a cold spell, but now since he's broken out of that cold spell, he's been one of the best spot-up options for that Sacramento Kings team. And maybe I shouldn't expect more playmaking from him. Maybe I shouldn't expect him to be in more passing situations or more downhill situations because he's really being asked to be a floor spacer for everyone else around him, which when he is in the lineup knocking down the shots that he's capable of, you would know it better than I do that Fox Herter, uh, Murray, Barnes, Sabonis lineup is one of the best offensive lineups we've had this year in the entire NBA. And it's, it's certainly not to go without mention that, yeah, there's a lot of good players in that lineup besides Keegan, but he is part of it and he's part of it for a reason. He's one of the more trusted spot up options the Kings have already with him as a rookie. And I never questioned the jump shot would be part of his arsenal. I, I believed in the shooting. You believed in the shooting. It's why we talked about him at length before the draft last year, 49% from the field in the month of December, 47% from three point range. When he has a going, he's got it going. The dude can be a flamethrower and he can hit shots in a variety of ways. So no, I don't hate Keegan Murray. I'm still very much in on the experience and I can't wait to see what other parts of his game can develop. I will say the defense in particular is something that he, I think, has looked better in December than he did in October, November, just because the first month or so of the season, he was really struggling on the defensive end. And mm -hmm. that's definitely been a lot better in recent weeks, which is super encouraging. The passing stuff, I'm not as worried about just because, I mean, most of the time, you know, if he's getting the ball, he's getting the ball in a place where he's expected to shoot the ball. And, you know, when he's not shooting, he's usually just, you know, making easy passing plays, you know, not trying to force things, but just, you know, keeping the ball moving, which doesn't necessarily show up in the assist column if you're making the pass to the assist. But, you know, it's a good sign that you're making the right move rather than turning the ball over. But the defensive concerns, I definitely get. And, you know, I guess that sort of counts as an apology to the city of Sacramento. So I'll, I'll take what I can do. <laughs> I, I it's it's more so I think he I think he's capable of doing more while he's not being asked to do more I still think there's some interesting opportunity there there are some there's some interesting pick and roll possessions that he's had already this year and I get that they're few and far between I think it's like five or six possessions at most on the year but he's actually looked surprisingly comfortable involved in them which is something we didn't necessarily expect from him in college last year he was much more of a play finisher much more of a, a catch and shoot or catch and rip guy when he has a little bit of time to, to size somebody up or, or take advantage of a screen up top, he actually hasn't looked terrible in doing so. And he was, he's, he's quote unquote an old rookie, but he's, he's not an old NBA player, right? He, he's still young with room to grow. And I think there's more to still unlock with Keegan Murray. That, that, that's all. So up next at number five, we have, friend of no ceilings jalen williams of the oklahoma city thunder and with j-dub i mean this has gone down slightly since the first edition of the rookie rank but he's just still so ridiculously efficient inside the three-point line he's still above 60 percent on two-pointers which is you know the kind of number you expect to see from a center not a 6-6 rookie guard right and that's i think really the main driving force behind what jalen williams has been so far is just he's been spectacularly efficient at scoring inside the arc and you know his three-point shooting hopefully will come around sooner rather than later you know the rest of his game he's still a solid defensive piece he's still someone who moves the ball really well especially for you know again going back to him being a rookie guard but you know him being a rookie guard his understanding of the game and his ability to read the floor already is exceptionally impressive and the easiest way to see that in terms of the numbers is just how good he's been at scoring inside the three-point line. But I mean, when you watch him on film, the rest of his game just really pops. He's someone who can do so many different things out there on the floor. I, I'm really glad that you talked out all of those positives, Nick, because I didn't want to spoil the next player in the ranking, the guy who earned the top five spot for me away from Keegan. It wasn't necessarily Keegan's fault. I wanted to reward Jalen Williams. That's why I filibustered so long on, on Keegan Murray, but Jalen Williams, what hasn't he done 
for the Oklahoma City Thunder since he's been playing real consistent minutes for them. And that's that's what I wanted to see, Nick, right? When, when we talked last time about possible snubs from, from the honorable mentions or why didn't I rank J-Dub inside the top 10 on my last rookie ranking, he was really starting to, to get his feet wet in the NBA and he was earning a more consistent opportunity. And now that he's had it, he's been one of the most versatile players on that team as a whole, right? One second, he'll be playing on the wing expected to be a spot up guy or a cutter. The next he'll be sort of like a small ball four, um, d- doing some weird, fun, crafty things in the post. Then he'll be bringing the ball up the floor and expected to initiate offense as a point guard, like all these different types of roles that he's been asked to play. And the fact that he's done all of them, he's one of the most versatile glue guys that we have in this entire rookie class. And he's also had some spectacular moments as a scorer. A lot of what you alluded to is his scoring inside the arc. He's had some games where he's been able to knock down some three-pointers and look pretty good doing so. He's been able to get to the free-throw line, get all the way to the rim. He's been a good rebounder for his size. I mentioned him bringing the ball up the floor and being more of a point guard with some units within the offense. He's been a good passer for this team as well. So a guy who we thought had a lot of off-ball equity is showing that Maybe we shouldn't have underestimated how much of an on-ball threat he could be just his first year in the NBA because of what a lot of what we saw him do last year in college. We see him be, we saw him be more of a creator, right? More of an on-ball guy. Now he's doing that with the Oklahoma City Thunder. He he earns a top five ranking for me, Nick, and I don't know if it's going to change at different points throughout the year. I I don't think so if he keeps up this level of play, but isn't he sort of the perfect definition right now of of what we would Im- envision positionless basketball to be? I think he just fits that so well, and that's why he's top five for me. And the final two players, number two and number one, have not changed since the first edition of the rookie rank. And we did deep dives on both of these guys in the volume one podcast. So we'll just touch on them briefly here. Number two, Benedict Matherin, who's cooled off ever so slightly since his really hot start, but is still averaging 18 points a game, is still, you know, putting up crazy numbers for this Indiana Pacers squad, and has, you know, certainly not been supplanted at the second spot on this rookie rank. Now, granted, I think there might be a little bit more difference between him and the number one guy than there was last time, but... That isn't to take anything away from Benedict Matherin, who's having a spectacular rookie season. No, you you called out a lot of it. I mean, Matherin earned his spot in the first place in these rankings because he's been a, a brilliant off-ball shot maker, right? He's been one of the better spot-up threats, one of the better catch-and-shoot threats. We know what he can do in transition. The, the new wrinkle that I'd call out really quickly before we get to number one would be his defense. I think he's been spectacular over the last month, month and a half on the defensive side of the ball, and that's really helping him have a firm grip on this number two spot, right? I, I really don't see anybody else taking that ranking from him at this point because if as many or if not more of these shots that he's taking are going in, with him being able to play this kind of defense on the wing, he's, he's taking better angles defensively. He, he's not letting size and strength and length dictate how he plays on that end. He's been tough. He's been aggressive. And then he's been the scrappy guy who we saw at Arizona die for loose balls, go after turnovers. That side of him is coming out more and more as the games progress. Therefore, I, I, I don't see anybody else taking the spot from Benedict Mathery. He's my number two. I mean, when you have a defensive mentor like Buddy Heald on the wing, how could you not be? <laughs> that was unnecessary, but I'm happy that I took that shot anyway. Shots fired. Shots anyway. fired. Shots absolutely fired, just like Buddy Heald anytime he touches the basketball. Anyway, moving on to number one on the list. We've kind of already spoiled it, but I don't think it's particularly surprising that Paulo Boncaro continues to be number one on this list. I mean, you know, 22 points a game, six and a half rebounds a game, four assists per game, leading this Orlando Magic team that, you know, started five and 20 and ever since then has just casually gone on a six game winning streak, including two wins over the Boston Celtics, one of which you referenced earlier on. It's been an insane season for Paulo. And I mean, you know, I think that we as a collective kind of expected him to put up a decent number of points, but, you know, I think that we were talking about him more as like a, you know, 16, 17 point per game guys are rookie, not a 22 point per game, like making a backdoor push for an all-star game birth, like what we've seen from Paulo so far. He's been, he's been incredible. And, you know, 
just like with Jaden Ivey, we don't need to talk about the defense, but his offensive game has been just exceptionally impressive and everything we could have expected to see from Paulo in your run and more, honestly. We we did the deep dive on him last time, so I won't say too much about his game because I don't really think he's showing anything quote-unquote new on the offensive side of the ball. But what I will say, Nick, I will just read a few sentences that I wrote in my column. As I said, I, as I've talked about previously, it's difficult for rookies to rank in the average or above percentiles per synergy. Ben Caro was there in quite a number of offensive categories while playing over 35 minutes a night, acting as one of the most important players in a lineup, a lineup, or I should I say a series of lineup combinations that are leading to wins in the NBA, that are leading to impressive wins. The fact that he's able to do what he's doing on offense, carrying the load that he is as a rookie, yeah, it, it, it speaks for itself. You you can you can go back and listen to the prior episode where we broke down all the different things, all the different ways he's impacting the game offensively. But really, it's it's that it's that volume usage and efficiency combination that I read off in that sentence that really brings his case together as the number one overall pick in the draft and certainly my favorite for rookie of the year. All right, before we wrap things up here, let's quickly run through the honorable mentions you have. So a few of these will be guys that came up last time, either on the top 10 or in the honorable mentions list. But first in the honorable mentions is Tari Eason of the Houston Rockets. And, you know, I think a lot of it has been just that he was spectacular to start the year and hasn't been quite as spectacular in the last month or so, but we've still seen a lot of impressive positives from Tari Eason early on in his NBA career. Yeah, he hasn't necessarily gotten more of a role within the Rockets rotation, right? His minutes are still about the same, but he's still been one of the best guys coming off the bench. He's still incredibly effective as a rookie, and it's hard to leave him off of that quote-unquote ballot that I'm making, that top 10 ranking. But he, he's still right there in the race, and I would expect him to be all year long. And next up in the honorable mentions list, Walker Kessler, who, as you noted, still has a PER above 20, which for a rookie is insane. He's ridiculous. He's ridiculous and ridiculously efficient, and he probably will be getting some more minutes, hopefully, maybe sooner than later for the Utah Jazz. I mean, it's hard for him to do much more than he's been doing in the minutes he's been given. It seems just like a question of can you do more in more minutes than he's getting. Everyone wants to talk about the shot blocking with him, which has been absolutely absurd, but even more absurd, Nick. He's barely missed any shot attempts from the field, period, since we did the last podcast together. That's that, that that's just ridiculous. I don't, I don't care where you're taking the shots from. I don't care if you're right next to the basket or you're dunking everything home. If you're making like 95% or some ridiculous number above that of your shot attempts, you deserve to have some sort of spotlight on you. So again, same, same with Tari Eason with, with Walker Kessler. I wanted to highlight some other guys uh, ahead of them and give them their shine. But Walker Kessler has done nothing on his own accord to knock himself out of this edition of the top 10. And when I go to make a ballot at the end of the year, I, I, I have a good feeling, even a, even more of a better feeling than with Tari. I, I really think Walker Kessler is going to be on that ballot. Yeah. It's one thing to say, Oh, you know, he's only making these shots within uh, two feet of the basket. It's like, guess what? If everybody could make 76% of their shots from two feet and in, they would do that. They would take those shots every time because you don't get to make 76% of your shots very often. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Up next on the list, Christian Brown, who's not quite making 76% of his shots from the field, but you thought that he'd done enough in his limited minutes to at least earn a place in the honorable mention section of the column. Yeah. And that's, that's really what it comes back to, right? When you do flip on some of the tape, when he is able to get involved and, and be competitive in some of these bigger games, he, he lets people know who he is and when he's on the floor by his play on both sides, he's just not getting the type of role that would really let him um, earn a higher spot in the ranking. But he's definitely someone who you take notice of when you watch Denver Nuggets games. So even though he's not playing as many minutes, the fact that if you do flip on a Nuggets game and you're able to talk about him by the end, that's still a very positive thing to say about a rookie who we can look at anybody in the rookie class. There's usually like 20 to 25 names that are really contributing in rotations and, and 10 to 12 that are doing it at a reasonably high level. 
quote unquote for a rookie. The fact that we can mention Brown in one of these conversations, yeah, he gets on the honorable mentions. And now the part of the column where you make it up to me for your King and Murray slander earlier, you have Nikolajovic here in your honorable mentions. So please, please say something positive about Nikolajovic. So I'm not the only no ceilings person ever who has said positive things about him. He's been, he's been pretty decent lately, Nick. He's been playing uh, a role. Uh, near- yes, huh? Really? Really? You're you're just you're 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 not gonna let it go because I, I always I always gave you crap about the fact that every single mock draft exercise we did you would rattle off Nicole Jovich's name for about 15 spots until we finally said all right we got to make Nick happy let's finally take him on a mock draft but in in all seriousness he's he's played a pretty good role for the Miami Heat he's playing near 20 minutes per game he's had some really good moments shooting the basketball. I think on the year he's 18, at least when I pulled these stats last for my column, it was 18 of 19 from the foul line on the year. He's showing the shooting stroke that you always thought he had. He's been involved within the offense, even though it's more of a simplified role than what he was doing overseas, which was at times acting like more of a playmaker. Even though it's more simplified, he's still knocking down opportunities when he gets them for a team that's still competitive in the Eastern Conference. Thank you for that. I can die happy now. (laughs) you're welcome nick so up next uh somehow we have yet another british nba player jeremy sohan of the san antonio spurs who unfortunately for him i think has been getting a lot more run on social media lately for his one-handed free throw that he took the other night but in terms of you know the parts of his game that are more relevant than 10 seconds on social media, he's been good enough defensively to earn minutes for Greg Popovich, which is not something you can say about more than a handful of rookies, honestly, ever. Absolutely. And his evaluation, it really hasn't changed since when we talked about him in the last rookie rank pod. He's still hanging his hat on the defensive side of the ball. And even though it's not always perfect, both on and off the ball, you could tell his versatility, being able to switch and guard one through four at the NBA level, that's going to earn you a spot in in any rookie rankings or in any honorable mention conversations that I want to have. And he has had some fun moments this year as quote unquote point. So which is something that we all uh, were, were eager to see when he got those opportunities last year at Baylor. Now he's had a few moments to be able to do that for the San Antonio Spurs. He's a player who still has a ton of room to grow so much more upside to tap into, but yeah, right away, it, it's been the defense, and that's probably going to be the story for his evaluation all year long. And quick note before we move on. Yes, of course, I'm aware that Nikola is Serbian, but he was born in Leicester in the United Kingdom, so that's why my semi-sensical transition made sense, I promise. <laughs> anyway, moving on to the final player that we're going to discuss today, Jalen Duran of the Detroit Pistons. And, I mean, we were talking earlier about our collective reactions to Jaden Ivey going to the Pistons on draft night. If anybody was a better fit in the lottery than Jaden Ivey, I think it was Jalen Durant going to the Pistons. And I think it's kind of in some ways similar to Walker Kessler in the sense that maybe if he get a little bit more playing time, he would have been able to do enough to earn his way into the top 10 on the list. But even without that, I mean, he has sort of similar to Ivy shown that his athleticism is still elite elite, even at the NBA level. And the two of them have just been so fun running pick and rolls. And that is a duo that I hope to see running many more pick and rolls for the rest of the season with Cade Cunningham out, but you know, just projecting out into the future, the two of them as a tandem is so much fun. High level finisher, ridiculous rebounder, the best lob threat on the Detroit Pistons team. Yeah, he's going to get a lot more run. Those combinations are lethal. He's putting up a rookie season that's very reminiscent of what Andre Drummond did as a rookie for the Detroit Pistons. This is a guy who, again, no fault to his own. And I said last, but certainly not least, the honorable mentions are not ranked. One more reminder for everybody out there listening. I'm not trying to slander Jalen Duren by having him as the last name we talk about on this podcast. But he has been impressive to me, and he's another one of these guys. If he ends up top 10 by the time we get to the end of the year, it wouldn't shock me at all because he's certainly been hyper-efficient in his role. And just because he's not playing a massive role for Detroit doesn't mean he hasn't been deserving of more opportunities for that team, which thankfully I hope he's going to keep getting because him and Jay Nivey, uh, just, just a little bit of a spoiler, somebody in those ceilings might be writing about those two pretty soon as a pick and roll combination, at least at some point, a little bit of a spoiler teaser, but yeah, Jalen Duren, one of the most fun rookies we have in the NBA. 
All right. Anything else you want to talk about here before we wrap things up? No, we, we touched on 16 different names in this rookie class, Nick. And, and it's, isn't it an awesome thing to be able to hit on that many names, right? Some of these rookie classes, we look back on them. You can look at prior draft classes and there are some real tire fire draft classes, but at the very least of an NBA draft class, (laughs) we, we don't know how this one's definitely going to turn out. A lot of people thought that it would certainly be a down year compared to like the 2021 draft class, for example, or the 2019 draft class, 2018. But what we've seen this year is a lot of guys came in ready to contribute. So regardless of where it ends up, historically, let's at least appreciate what these guys are able to do right now in their rookie years. Well said. All right. He is Nathan Gribble. You can find him on Twitter at Draft Deeper, and you can, of course, find his written work on the No Ceilings NBA website. If you haven't already checked out volume two of the rookie rank, first of all, why did you listen to the last hour plus of this podcast? But second of all, you should definitely go and check that out on no ceilings, You can find me on Twitter at N B A J O H N S O N. And you can find my written work on no ceilings, I tried something new last week with a piece that I called editor's notes. So If any of you have been enjoying my writing but have not had the chance to check that out, please check that out and let me know what you thought of it. Again, it was something I hadn't really tried before, so hopefully it worked out, and hopefully those of you who read it appreciated the piece. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. That is super helpful on our end and of course, even more helpful than it would usually be given that we are now all merged onto one daily podcast feed. So we're about to hit month three of the No Ceilings NBA podcast being five times a week. So if you've been enjoying that, please take the time to let us know via a rating and or a review. And if you have any feedback about the deep dives portion of the No Ceilings NBA podcast, please reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.